You're listening to Oddments, the podcast for curious people and curious things. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. In this episode, we learn some secrets from the tail numbers on aircraft, discover the meaning of cabotage, and meet a man who's always drunk. But first, let's have a listen to this. Les Miserables, a rather miserable name to pronounce for an English speaker, but a worldwide phenomenon as a book, musical, and motion picture. And while Victor Hugo's story is an emotional roller coaster, it's not considered great history. But that doesn't mean some of it isn't accurate, and one of those things, believe it or not, is the elephant, though the real version was nearly four times the size of the one depicted in the film. For those that are unfamiliar with the work, there is an oversized elephant statue that features somewhat prominently and is the home of street urchin Gavroche. It actually existed after being dreamt up by none other than Napoleon in 1808. By imperial decree, he commanded that the elephant be erected on the spot where the famed Bastille once stood, and that it be made out of bronze from Russian cannons captured during the Battle of Friedland. It was to be called the Elephant of the Bastille. The gigantic beast's plans called for it to be 80 feet tall, with internal stairs leading to a saddled platform which would allow people to view the city and reflect upon French history. Fountains and a pool would circle the massive legs, and the base for these was built in 1812. As a giant elephant is a unique construction, the builders decided to make a model of wood and plaster first, and in 1814 it was finished. A guard was hired to protect the monstrosity, and he actually lived in one of the massive legs, much like Gavroche in Hugo's story. But note that date. Though construction was meant to continue, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo the following year brought an end to this and all the rest of Napoleon's projects. The model elephant sat where it was built, and though just a model, it ended up being the pinnacle of the project. Untended plaster and wood don't fare well in the elements, and by 1820, rats had taken up residence in the pachyderm's innards. Neighbors were complaining that the rats would raid their homes for food and then scurry off to the elephant, who oddly displayed no fear of the rodents. In his book, Victor Hugo described the public work thusly, There it stood in its corner, melancholy, sick, crumbling, surrounded by a rotten palisade, soiled continually by drunken coachmen cracks meandered athwart its belly, a lath projected from its tail, tall grass flourished between its legs. And, as the level of the place had been rising all around it for a space of thirty years by that slow and continuous movement which insensibly elevates the soil of large towns, it stood in a hollow and looked as though the ground were giving way beneath it. It was unclean, despised, repulsive, and superb, Ugly in the eyes of the bourgeois, melancholy in the eyes of the thinker. In 1840, the July Column, now a famous tourist spot, was installed in the intended location of the elephant. It wasn't until 1846 that the miserable beast, see what I did there, was finally put down. But all is not lost. Perhaps inspired by Napoleon, a builder named James V. Lafferty took out a patent on an animal-shaped building in 1881. 
Soon after, he built what's now known as Lucy the Elephant, a 65-foot copy of the Elephant of the Bastille, just south of Atlantic City, New Jersey. Inspired by the success of this creation, he went on to build two more, including one on Coney Island that was 122 feet tall, surpassing the Napoleon design by over 40 feet. Sadly, the Coney Island model, which served as a hotel, burned down in 1896. The other elephant in Cape May was not a success and was torn down some 10 years later. But Lucy the Elephant persevered. In the 1960s, she more resembled Hugo's description of the Les Mis elephant, but received a reprieve in 1970 when local citizens moved her away from the shore and gave her a much-needed rehabilitation. And she's still there today, awaiting picnicking families and gawking tourists. For those who wish to follow the footsteps of Gavroche, tours are available for $8, but in contrast to Les Miserables, members of the military are admitted for free. You've probably noticed that all civil aircraft have numbers painted on them. These are essentially the plane's license plates, and from them you can learn some things about that particular plane. For example, if the numbers begin with an N, the plane is registered in the U.S. If the number begins with a single letter C, it's Canada. A double letter C is Chile, and so on. By law, the plates are required to be fireproof in hopes that an aircraft could be identified if there was a disaster. In the U.S., N numbers have some restrictions. There can be at most six digits, including the N. The letters I and O can never be used because they look like one and zero, and a maximum of two letters can be used, and only after the numbers. Other than that, all other numbers may be assigned to civil aircraft, with an interesting exception. You have probably seen a plane with this number, N9748C. Remember that number if you can, because you'll see it again. I'll explain. Have you ever noticed that in the movies, phone numbers usually begin with 555? And have you noticed that you don't know anyone with a 555 number? That's because that exchange is reserved and can't be used for cell phones or landlines. At least that used to be true. In 1994, some of them were allowed for public use. But the numbers 555-0100 through 555-0199 were reserved for fake numbers so that movies could use them without creating an 8675309 moment. N9748C is the same thing. It's an aircraft registration that's reserved for film usage. Where might you have seen it? In the TV series Lost, where it was an Ajira Airways flight, or maybe on the CIA surveillance helicopter in red. It was also the number of the float plane in Trapped, and in an episode of the TV series Finder, though oddly it was on a military plane, which would never have an N number. And in Casino Royale, the number was painted on the side of a 727 that had a rather unfortunate incident with its fuselage, and ended up not even being used in the film. But, you may ask, what if a movie has more than one plane in it? James Bond helps us out here as well. The new plane that's the center of the airport chase scene in Casino Royale has a different number, N9747P. This is another number reserved for films. It was previously used for a helicopter in the earthquake-themed, made-for-TV movie, 10.5.
So yes, there are a few different numbers that filmmakers can use, and often they don't bother to use a fake number at all. If you look up the number N5739V, you'll find that it belongs to a helicopter used and repainted for many films. So the next time you're bored at the airport, take a moment to Google the plane's tail number. You can find out where the plane is from, what year it was made, and who owns it. And you can find out if it was a movie star. In the emergency room, a clearly inebriated person who denies having anything to drink is an event known as Saturday night. Usually, a bit of time and hydration will see the patient off home nursing a hangover. But for one man, this happened so often that steps were taken to make sure he couldn't sneak a drink. He was isolated for 24 hours without any access to alcohol. When he emerged, he had a blood alcohol content of 0.12, legally above the limit in every state. And you're thinking, of course, he found a way to hide some alcohol on his person. And you're right, though he was actually hiding it in his person. No, this isn't what you're thinking. The man had no idea he was hiding the alcohol. Six years earlier, he'd suffered a broken foot and was prescribed antibiotics to promote the wound's healing. In the following years, his wife would notice that he would be frequently drunk and often at inopportune moments. She didn't see him drinking, but she knew he had been because of his behavior. She could even smell the alcohol on his breath. Every time, he would deny it, and she would shake her head at the incongruity. Finally, things got so bad she was forced to take action, and the husband agreed to be tested. Even the doctors were convinced he was lying, until the 24-hour isolation. His belongings had been thoroughly searched, and they were pretty sure he hadn't managed to sneak something in. After a bit of research, doctors found the answer. It seems that the antibiotics he had taken years earlier had nearly killed all of his gut flora, that is, the bacteria that usually live in the human digestive system. With the competition out of the way, yeast moved in and set up shop, in this case, a brewery. Yeast consume carbohydrates and excrete alcohol. Wine and beer are the results of yeast consuming grains or grapes in the process we call fermentation. This patient had that process going on in his gut, and the alcohol was being absorbed just as if he were downing beer after beer. The pattern was soon established. If he ate a lot of carbs, say at a spaghetti dinner, the yeast in his gut would start producing alcohol 24 hours later. More carbs meant more alcohol and more drunkenness. Fortunately for the patient, a course of antifungals cured him of his ailment, and he went back to his normal life. In the official paper written about the case and published in the Internal Journal of Clinical Medicine, the researchers urged other doctors not to be so quick to dismiss claims of immaculate inebriation. Cabotage. It sounds like what slugs do to cruciferous vegetables in a truck garden. But it actually refers to moving passengers or goods between ports in a country that is not the official country of the ship involved. Let's say you were a ship owner from Canada and wanted to take passengers from Baltimore to Miami. This act is known as cabotage, and it's actually illegal in the United States due to the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Better known as the Jones Act, it was written to protect U.S. shipping interests. According to the Act, only U.S.-built, U.S.-flagged, and U.S.-crewed ships may take passengers and cargo between U.S. ports without also visiting a foreign country. 
What this means for you is that it's impossible to take a cruise from New York to Miami without also stopping at Bermuda or Nassau. For folks cruising to Alaska, you'll have to stop in either Vancouver or Victoria, British Columbia, if even only for a few hours. Oddly, the ship doesn't actually have to do anything there. If the weather is bad, the ship may stop in Victoria and send only a single crew member ashore to fulfill the requirement. This has happened and passengers were understandably upset. The problem is worse in Hawaii, which isn't near any other countries. The U.S. is many days away and the nearest foreign island is Fanning Island in Kiribati, some 1,000 miles away. A round trip would take several days, making this an unattractive option. If you want to fly to Hawaii and take a cruise, there is exactly one ship that will take you around the islands, and that is the Pride of America. Though owned by Norwegian Cruise Lines, the ship is crewed by Americans, making it the only cruise ship capable of sailing between two U.S. ports without visiting a foreign port. So why aren't there more U.S. crewed ships? Economics. Cruise ships are crewed with people from nations with developing economies. In most cases, these folks are willing to work for wages that would be unacceptable in the U.S. Also, while sailing in U.S. waters, U.S. flagged ships have more restrictive rules on casinos, which limits the amount of money a ship can make. Given that the U.S. shipping industry has all but vanished, it seems as though it's time to retire the Jones Act. But as yet, there hasn't been congressional interest in doing so, despite pressure from cruise lobbyists. So if you're hoping for that cruise down the eastern coast of the U.S., you'll have to combine it with Nassau, Canada, or Bermuda. Or wait until we have a functioning Congress. One good thing, though, Alaska travelers are forced to experience Vancouver or Victoria, and both are wonderful ports. Which is a nice segue into a College of Curiosity field trip that's coming up in March of 2015. If you'd like to travel the world with like-minded, curious folks, we have just the thing. We'll be going to the South Pacific to explore the wonders of Australia and beyond. Our pre-tour starts in Sydney, where we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the famous Opera House, and then head into the wilderness for close encounters with local wildlife. Then it's off to New Caledonia and the Loyalty Islands for an exotic eight-day cruise aboard Celebrity Solstice, one of the most innovative ships at sea. Upon our return, our post-tour will be taking people to New Zealand for some breathtaking vistas and possibly a Hobbit sighting or two. Space is available, but there are some time-limited specials, so if you'd like to travel in a slightly more curious fashion, visit collegeofcuriosity.com for full details. That's it for this time. Thank you very much for listening. Show notes are available at collegeofcuriosity.com. 